two kind of indicators for me is, do you feel like you have any power to change the situation? And the closer we get to know, I'm like, ah, there's some grief here. And do you feel safe about this situation? And the closer we get to know, there's some grief or things that need grieving here. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we help professionals navigate the emotional and promotional sides of the job search in order to stress less and earn more in their careers. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Shelby for Cynthia to the podcast. Shelby is the author of Your Grief, Your Way and Permission to Grieve, and also the host of three podcasts, including Grief Book Review, Grief Seeds, and Coming Back Conversations on a Life After Loss. She uses a combination of practical tools and intuitive guidance to help grieving people reclaim their power and peace of mind after death, divorce, diagnosis, and major life transitions. Her work has been featured on the Huffington Post, Bustle, and in the Oprah Magazine. In our conversation today, we talk about grieving during a job loss, whether you were laid off, fired, furloughed, or quit, whether we are losing our financial security or our sense of identity. It is really important for us to process these emotions in a healthy way in order to become the stronger, more capable versions of ourselves. And I'm super excited about the conversation that we had around these topics. If you like this episode, I hope that you'll check out Shelby's work linked in the description. And I hope you leave us a review on iTunes so we can help more people navigate their careers in healthy ways. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Shelby. I'm really excited to learn more about your perspectives on grief in regards to our careers, because, you know, more and more as as we get into the modern age, people are changing jobs really often. And so identity and jobs and all these things get kind of wrapped up in interesting ways. And then sometimes it's out of your control when things get taken away from you or um, even there, I'm sure there's grief when people choose to quit a job, right? You lose friends, you lose identity, you lose all sorts of different things. And you are the you know reigning expert on grief. So <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you today about those emotions, especially because I was chatting with a client just last week, which awesome that we have this podcast, but uh, they were talking about how they felt like they were going through the stages of grief and, you know, I'm not as well versed in it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and you've already touched on some things that are very true in and about grief. And yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes today. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I'd love to just kick it off real, real easy, just lobbing them up for you. Um, but what is grief <laughs> for those who maybe don't know, you know, the ins and outs of it? And why is it an important emotion for us to think about and discuss? Yeah. So um, grief, as I define it, and as I work with it with clients is the collection of emotions. So grief in and of itself can be called an emotion, but grief can also be the collection of emotions that follows any loss. And to kind of give you a bonus to that, what is loss? For me, loss is anytime you cross through a doorway and a door closes and you can't cross back through. So this, of course, is something like death 
but can also be something like a divorce or a separation of a relationship. It can be a diagnosis that changes your life, like a chronic illness or something you have to live with forever. It can be job loss. It can also be, you can also choose losses. So you can leave a job, you can break up with a partner, you can move across the country. And there's always grief in that. In gain, there's always grief. And in grief, there's always gain. It's it's really fascinating to think about. But if you're looking at your life and, and telling yourself, I haven't experienced loss, have you ever crossed through a metaphorical doorway that you can't cross back through? Even things like puberty and for people who can get pregnant, things like pregnancy are types of losses. If you've been married, you're grieving a single life, even if you're not sad to lose it, all the collections of emotions that come with that loss or the crossing through the doorway can be classified as loss. And then all the emotions that follow can be classified as grief. I love that. And I think one of the reasons why people don't necessarily think about it in their life uh, on a day-to-day basis, right? I mean, you work with people where it's very acute, right? With death and, and things like that. But in, in careers, I don't think people are taught to think about the grief aspect of the changes in their careers, right? Like even graduating college, like that's a lot of people grieve that or retirement. A lot of people don't know what to do with themselves when they retire. Like there are these pivotal moments where we're just thrust into a new thing and our worlds are turned upside down and we're just supposed to be stoic and not be emotional about it because that's what you're supposed to do in the workplace. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, what, what does it look like when someone is not processing their grief? Because maybe they don't feel like they're allowed to, or they don't even know they're going through it. I think some of the tells for me, especially when I work with clients and for what it's worth, I have worked with clients whose biggest loss was the loss of a job because job is so closely tied to identity. Um, But I think if, if people aren't processing their grief, they often feel like they have absolutely no power and they feel unsafe. And that can come out in different ways, but feeling powerless is like, the world has rolled over on top of me. So whether I didn't have a choice in leaving this job or I don't have the power to find a new one um, can be tailored to job loss that way. And then feeling unsafe, it's like, no matter what risk I take, I'm gonna get screwed, if you'll pardon my French there. Or um, I'm afraid to go out of this box. Or if I don't conform to the way things are normally done, especially in specific fields like medical or law or things where you have to jump through a certain number of hoops to get things, there's a lot of... um, they sense like the competition or they sense how bad it could be. There's a lot of anxiety wrapped up in that as well. And so we can talk about mental health in relation to job loss and the job search. But yeah, the two kind of indicators for me is, do you feel like you have any power to change the situation? And the closer we get to know, I'm like, ah, there's some grief here. And do you feel safe about this situation? And the closer we get to know, there's some grief or things that need grieving here. That's incredible because in people's careers, even when you're employed, the sense of powerlessness is very much there. And the sense of insecurity mm-hmm. of I'm, I'm screwed either way. <laughs> like that is, that is a lot of people. That's a lot of people's jobs of like, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? And so with the folks you've worked with um, in those, moments where they've lost that, what, what are they going through? What does that look like in their day to day? Yeah, this actually um, came up in a workshop I led yesterday called Make Friends with Fear. And we talked about how being afraid is often a symbol that something needs grieving, but 
it comes out as anxiety or um, hyper awareness of situations or hyper vigilance of waiting for the next bad thing to happen. Um, so it kind of, it depends on your workplace and how it's structured, but it can come across as uh, always being afraid that you're going to get fired or that you're going to lose your job or get demoted or something bad in the workplace is going to happen to you. It can be um, competitiveness or comparing yourself to people who are at your same level or higher above you or even lower below you. It can be worrying about money or kind of the things that are inevitably tied to having a job. Um, and it can also be time anxiety. Am I climbing ladders fast enough? Am I on the ladders I wanna climb? How long is this gonna take? How long is this gonna take? How long is this gonna take? And almost obsessively either planning for the future or despairing that it's impossible to plan at all. Um, swinging on both sides of those pendulum. I often refer to anxiety with clients as a pendulum that swings between control and despair. <laughs> control of everything and then despair that we don't have any. Um, and so it's like, which, which uh, ride are we taking right now? Are we closer to despair? Or are we closer to control? And however way that manifests is a really um, clear symbol that this is coming, fears coming up, griefs coming up, something that needs to be addressed, pardon the cat in the background, something that needs to be addressed regarding grief and loss is happening for you in the workplace. Yeah. And, the, and when we, and the cat is more than welcome. The cat's an extra guest. Yes. I love it. <laughs> Um, and when, um, that, that pendulum swing between control and not in control, it, it pushes us to, or what I've seen is when folks start feeling real, and I'll even say personally, when you start feeling that anxiety and you start feeling that loss of control, your initial instinct is to either numb out and run away or to try and control everything in a really mm -hmm. like intense way. Um, and you see that play out in a lot of different ways with folks with either substances or with, um, you know, the way they behave in relationships or things like that, right? Like, I, I think a lot of times I hear in relationships, it's like, if, if there's a lot of anger and fighting, it's really an avoidance of certain emotions or like a protecting of certain things that are much more uh, core, much more soft, right? It's like the hard shield out there, right? And so um, what do you tend to see folks distract themselves with instead of confronting their grief? Oh, well, this kind of depends on where in the world you're located, but I know at least um, for westernized clients that I work with, it's a lot of food and alcohol because those are acceptable right now in our society. Also, um, fantasy, i.e. escaping to things like Netflix or to binge reading books or to kind of just like, how do I, how do I tune out of the world that I'm living in and into something totally separate? Um, food and alcohol are really accepted. And then uh, fantasy is as well in our society. But you can also see that come out through, um, through drugs, through substances, like you were mentioning, but also through things like shopping or buying a lot of things at once, stress shopping, because it's like, well, I control my money. So maybe I can have all of these things. So materialism comes up sometimes. Also, sleeping a lot or not sleeping at all. And then uh, the last one I'll point out that feels a little bit more rare, but you kind of saw coming up when COVID first hit is um, recklessness. So because the streets were clear and people were stressed out, people were driving at like, I don't know, 80, 90 miles an hour, 95 on the interstate when the speed limit's 60, but because it's like, I'm stressed, there's no one else here. A, I kind of am an a-hole, but B, there's something about like, I want to be alive. So sometimes if you see people doing a lot of risky things or reckless things all at once, like I'm going to go skydiving, then I'm going to get a tattoo and then I'm going to move across country and then whatever. I'm like, what's happening in your world that 
is not being processed. And that's not to say that you can't go skydiving or get a tattoo or move across the country, but especially when it happens back to back to back without a lot of intention or reflection could be a symbol of there's some grief in here that's not being addressed. I love that you're bringing those things up. I actually had a, I want to get a tattoo moment in the- Oh, I wanted to cut all my hair off. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many things. That's hilarious. (laughs) Um, And I've also had those moments in my career where um, moving across the country was was the next step. Um, And I look at some of the moments in my career, whether it was me quitting or whether it was getting laid off and the- dominoes that happened afterward are really interesting to look back on, right? Um, I remember I was in a, in a job once and I really wanted to get out and I decided, you know, I'm gonna quit by this date. And I, once I made that decision, it created this domino of like, all right, I'm also gonna get out of this relationship. I'm gonna move out of this apartment. I'm going to go on a road trip with, with a buddy of mine. And like that cascade Um, you know, it was an interesting period of growth in my life, but it was also like, that could probably have been done in stages. It maybe didn't all have to happen at the same moment, but I do find that, um, that it's like, all right, well, if I'm going to control it, I'm going to control all of it, or if I'm going to avoid it, I'm Mm going to avoid all of it. And that is such an interesting all or nothing approach. Do you see a lot of all or nothing thinking in the folks that you work with? Oh yeah. Well, and I'm guilty of this as well. And I call it psychological extremism. (laughs) Um, In my work, I'm like, and then I read it like uh, to myself when I work with myself or sometimes when I work with clients, we'll joke and read it in like a monster truck voice, like extreme anxiety. And it's just like the the ways in which it shows up. And so there's these stories of um, if I get fired from this job, I'll never get another job again. So never and always are indicators Mm. or I'm I always have to start at the bottom from a company. I can never come in mid-level or high level. And so these stories that people tell about themselves, but it's like, oh, I never put up. And so you read it in like monster truck voice. And it's like extreme stories. Because so much of the work that I do in grief is not necessarily helping people pull emotions out of themselves. That's part of it. But a a larger part of the work I do is as um, author Lori Gottlieb says, to help edit the stories that people tell themselves in their brains. And so I'm like, how is this story of I always start at the bottom and I can never come in at mid-level or higher level? How is that serving you right now? And for a lot of um, times, especially in jobs, it's it's keeping them stuck. It's reinforcing a victim story. It's um, It could be telling something that's very true, especially if they're in a marginalized population or in a workforce that does not see a lot of people like them. Um, and so it could be like, I am a person who's breaking barriers and this is the price that I'm forced to pay because of how society is structured. But it could also be, how true is this? Are there other ways I can help myself? And so these are the questions that I ask in sessions that offer people, how can I have power here? Or how can I feel safer here? What within this job that I don't have control over, can I access control over? And in that space, if I don't have control, can I help myself feel safer? But yeah, that extremism of the never and always, very common in grief and in job searching. Yeah. And I like the way you put that, right? You said, how true is this? And I think that's a really important question for folks to think about because you called out a number of great things in what you just said. You're like, sometimes it is real, right? There is systemic mm-hmm. stuff. There is like legitimate things to worry about. Sometimes it's imaginary. And then even from my experience, because I also, a big piece of my job is helping people edit their stories. A, a lot of it is like real and unreal, all mixed together. 
And it's yes. very hard to untangle it, right? It's like in my last job, I did have someone who was X towards me, prejudice or whatever it might've been. Um, but then it gets blown up into all these other things or you start seeing it in everything, even if it's not there, right? Like you see that in people who are younger in relationships or I guess any age really, but it's like that person treated me that way. So now I'm hyper vigilant for any signs of that happening in the future. And sometimes it can be too much, right? So where, where do you see that sort of reality and unreality coming together and, and how do we separate that? I love this because I was literally talking with a friend about this last night in terms of um, relationships, in terms of partnership, because you can start to tell yourself the story that <laughs> I always date people that I end up needing to fix or something like that, or there, or I always date people who talk down to me, or I can never find somebody um, who's in good working order, whatever that means in partnership. And so they kind of start to see these pink or red flags start popping up in all of the new relationships. And they're like, am I at this place again? Am I in the bad situation? And part of this is self-protective. Like this should be allowed in relationships is to be aware of the person that you have found yourself in partnership with. Similarly, to be aware of the job that you are operating in day to day, week to week, however your job is structured in terms of time. And then there's a point I think that's reached where it's like we we jump the gun of self-protection. I'm so ready to protect myself that I will pull out at the at a, if someone sneezes, like if at the at a moment's notice, I'm ready to pull out. And something that I work with clients to do that can be really, really helpful, especially if we can talk about this too, if they're returning to work after a loss and they don't feel safe in that space, I'm still grieving. Three days bereavement is not enough, and that's a whole other issue. Um, but to create a contract with themselves as opposed to waiting for something bad outside of them to happen from the job or the relationship. It's like, if I see this pink flag, I will respond in this way. I will have a conversation. I will talk to my manager. I will phone a friend or however that happens. If this turns into a red flag, I will state my boundary. I will offer one more opportunity. If that continues to go poorly, I will leave. And so, and hereby signed this date, my name, whatever. And you can put it somewhere you can see it. You can tuck it away in a notebook. You can hang it on the fridge. I don't really care what you do with it. But the goal I think that a lot of people are trying to achieve is how do I protect myself? How do I keep myself from getting hurt in ways that I don't need to be hurt? Because loss happens to all of us inevitably. So you can't protect yourself from everything. But in these situations that are at least partially in your control, it's like, how can you create a contract with yourself? I'm entering into this new thing. It's scary. It could turn out like the last one. I don't know. And if it does. In that case, here are the actual literal steps I'm taking to protect myself in this. And beyond that, big deep breath, it's out of my control. Mm-hmm. And so it, it takes you from this place of I am paranoid and I'm hypervigilant and I'm constantly on the lookout for the other shoe to drop to this place of when the shoe drops, I know what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to throw it back at the person it fell from. I'm going to throw it in the trash. I'm going to try and find the other pair. It's it's like, what actionable step are you going to take to get yourself to a place where you feel safe? And so for instance, when people are grieving and going back to work, they're like, what if I start crying in, in a meeting? What if I break down in front of my boss? What if I can't focus and I miss a deadline? I'm like, okay, let's write down all these what ifs. And then what can you practically do 
to cushion yourself or protect yourself in these scenarios? Do you need to have a preemptive meeting with a manager and say, can we structure my time differently? Can you ask for extensions on deadlines or offload work to other people? Can you work from home part day of the week? Can you find a stairwell that's really empty that you can go cry in? Like what, what are all, if you have to go to work and you have to be a grieving person at work, how can you protect yourself if both of those things are true? And it takes you from the circling of the what ifs and literally vomits them onto paper. And then how can you protect yourself practically in those sign and date? Now I know what I'm going to do if this happens. And then there's the practice of actually practicing it. So sometimes when things happen, we jump right back to paranoia again. We're like, wait, I formed a plan for this. And every single time something uncertain or unknown happens, it's a returning to that trust or that contract that you made with yourself. The actionability of that is incredible because we have these sort of grooved patterns that have developed throughout our lives of how we respond to things, whether it was formed with family or formed with friends or formed with whatever. And, you know, you, you come across those people, right? They, they've just keep going from friend group to friend group from job to job, and they never stick it out more than two or three years. And that's like the whole job hopping red flag. And, and there's a whole nother conversation to be had about job hopping. But I think that there's such an interesting thing that you said in there where we are, if we're not coming up with other actionable responses that we can then go test and see how they work instead, we're always just going to fall back to the thing that we're comfortable with. And, you know, if you're someone who I actually have a, a client, um, he, he is one of those people. He's like, you know, I've changed careers a dozen times. I've worked in so many different industries. I don't want this to keep happening while at the same time he's talking to me about how much he really dislikes the teacher of this course that he's in and he wants to leave that course and it's like mm -hmm. it's like i had to coach him to learn how to provide feedback in a different way um and what ended up happening was he was able to express his distaste for the class while also being productive in his critique and that actually led to an opportunity that might turn into a job with the company that he's critiquing. So like that kind mm. of a response is so different. And like, he's, you know, he's still in the midst of it. We'll see what happens, but mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting how changing your response to things and not just falling back to your go-to um, defense mechanisms, let's call them, uh, can really start to have an amazing effect in both being empowering, helping you understand what you're in control of and then what I really want to get into with you as we keep going in the conversation of like, how do you process grief? How do you come back from grief? Or how do you build with grief going on in those different things that are all built into that? Because life doesn't just pause, right? We, we can't just mm -hmm. keep resetting every couple of years and hoping that <laughs> that's okay. And so, um, you know, you said a few things here that I think are really interesting. One of them is... Uh, the kind of classic comedy trope of I'll make fun of myself before someone else does so that I'm protected. Right. And mm -hmm. I feel like that happens with people's jobs. I'll quit before they fire me. I'll get out of here. But you're still losing that part of you. You're still losing that group of people, that career, that whatever. And so you really can't escape it. Like no matter what you do, if you're, if the transition is going to happen, quitting or getting laid off, you're going to have to process that emotion. And I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's maybe what people think is that they can get around it. They can get away from it. They don't have to experience it. 
but do you feel like it, no matter what we try and do, it's like, you've got to go through it, not around it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, totally. Um, before I get to that, and you might have to remind me of this question again, I want to like riff really quickly on the thing you said about your mm -hmm. client, um, hating the course and job hopping and something that I've had to try really hard for myself to, um, learn to distinguish between in life after loss is the difference between something that tastes bad and something that's poisonous. And so it's like, okay, is this thing uncomfortable and crappy? And I just have to get through it in order to maintain where I am, or is this actually going to kill me, hurt me, wound me, cause me great bodily harm or pain. And this is metaphorical, of course, but it's like, what, what is uncomfortable and kind of part of the job, uh, more or less, like the, what's the 20% pain in the 80% gain world? And what is actually a red flag? What's toxic? What's a sign that something is disintegrating here? What is like wrath from a sinking ship? Like, what is that? Um, and so that's something I've had to try really hard to keep in mind because especially if you're living with grief, whether it's a death, divorce, diagnosis, if it is big and it has changed your life, everything tastes like poison because everything hurts all the time. And so like, it's like your nerve endings are exposed all the time. And so you're like, everything hurts, but I can't measure the intensity of it. And so a really helpful question sometimes to ask yourself as you're making this personal contract or as you're weighing, what am I going to do with this job or in this job is, does this just taste bad and it's uncomfortable? Am I having growing pains? Am I with a teacher or instructor that I don't really appreciate? Do I have to take this exam that I really don't want to be a part of? Or is it a thing where like, there's sexual harassment in the workplace. They're not paying me enough. They won't let us discuss our salaries. Um, they mandate that we, they say that we only work 40 hours a week and then they require us to work 60 with no overtime. Like what, what is, what tastes bad and is uncomfortable and then what's actually causing you pain and causing you harm. So that's a really neat um, distinction that's been enormously helpful to me. Well, especially and looking at that whole picture, right? Cause there might be harm happening in multiple places at the same time, mm -hmm. but because it's like a little harm and a little harm and a little harm, but because it's happening in three places all at once, like let's say family relationship and job, suddenly mm -hmm. all of it feels like it's like a hundred percent when really it's just like a 20, 20, 20. And you could, you could fix the individual things, but sometimes we just blow it all up. Right. Um, so that's right. really fascinating. Well, unless you saw this with COVID too, is like the world shuts down. A lot of people are losing their jobs. Any problem in your marriage or relationship is going to seem a lot worse when you're unemployed or when the world is going through a pandemic for the first time or um, election fraud is happening like right before or accusations of election fraud are happening. So surviving literally last year um, from March until about well, even March. So a whole year surviving this last year has been a lot to endure. And I've seen with my clients, but just like out in the world, the level of emotions that people mm. are carrying around is so much higher and so much more on their, on the surface than they were in life pre-COVID. And I actually appreciate that because I like knowing how people are feeling a lot. And I think grief should be more public, but um, I think a lot of people have been scared by how much grief is cumulative because not only are you losing your job, you're losing your job in a pandemic when the world doesn't really know what to do, when we're politically divided, when there's things happening in your relationships, when you're forced to stay at home, like there's so much to grieve and the grief is cumulative. And so, yeah, you're right. The little pain, the little pain, the little pain can all add up to feel like everything is overwhelming, in which case this bring everything back to center. Is it uncomfortable 
or am I going to die from it? And mm. it's because it's hard to tell the difference. And I want to validate that. That's true, especially if you have anxiety or other mental health issues that can extrapolate things into big stories that you tell yourself. Um, with that, I know you wanted to talk about like getting through the grief. Yes, there's an illusion that if I am the person to press the, um, the self-destruct button, then I have more control and I have more power and it's not going to hurt me. That's an illusion. Um, how much it hurts you and how and where it hurts you, yes, will be different than if you had been fired. And maybe you can avoid the sudden slash unexpectedness of it. So if you're suddenly fired, you can avoid that by firing yourself um, ineffective or, or leaving a job, but there are other things to grieve. Because if everything's in your control, then what happens next is also your direct responsibility. And so there's so much to grieve either way, because work is so tied up with identity. You have to grieve the person who had this job. So an old version of yourself who was employed at X company under X people. You have to grieve uh, your friend circles or your coworker circles, even if you didn't like them, it's like, oh, I'll miss bantering with whoever at the water cooler or I'll miss that asshole who kept throwing stuff over the cubicle. Um, you can also grieve, you know, connections that you made that you're really going to miss at the workplace. And so, because especially as adults, we make most of our friends at work. And so when we leave jobs, we are leaving massive friendship circles that are kind of defaulted to us. Like when you're in college, you're in the same courses with people. When you're at work, you're in the same workplace with people. You can also grieve if you travel to work, you can grieve a commute seeing the same sights and sounds. It's kind of surreal to go back to an old neighborhood where a job was like a year later and be like, wow, everything's changed. And I would have known had I still had this job and now I don't. Um, you can grieve uh, your bosses and your managers, whether they were kind to you or not. Sometimes grief warrants um, processing anger and sometimes grief warrants processing sadness or pain um, over a loss. Sometimes it's just processing the routine or the ritual of seeing them regularly. Maybe you didn't have a lot of feelings about who they were. Maybe you weren't at the job long enough or that you didn't see them enough. You also have to grieve the company as an idea, especially now in the 21st century that companies are not just places of business. They are, they are brands with ideologies and missions in the world. And so you can grieve not being a part of that bigger mission. You can grieve um, even the structure of the position. So how much you were paid, how many hours you got to work, whether or not you got to work from home um, and the structure of how it was set up, even the physical building where your job was located. You can grieve the aesthetics of that, where you were physically located, how far away you were from the bathroom, how far away you were from the kitchen, like just the routine of it all. And I know this might sound crazy to people who have never done a lot of work with grief, um, but the, the clearest example I can bring to my mind right now is Hope Edelman, uh, who wrote the book, Motherless Daughters. She's really big in the grief space. She recently put an all call out on uh, Facebook because she's moving out of her house. And she's like, what's a good grief ritual for moving after a divorce? And so many people suggested that she go room to room and either take pictures or video or just um, stand there with herself and recall with her daughters, all the memories that they made in each room of the house. So when they leave, it's like now we have grieved the experience of living in this home and we can release it to the next owners or to the housing industry or whoever's scooping it up after this. But the, I don't know if there's a purpose of grieving because um, we're kind of always learning how to do it, but what grief should do in an ideal world is help you expand your experience of what it means to be human. Whether that's, I'm having a different emotional experience than I've ever had before. I'm grieving something I've never had to grieve before. So like the loss of a job or um, like the loss of a location or a space. And the way to go through it is A, non-judgment. 
lots of non-judgment about whether what you're feeling is right or wrong. If you're having a feeling, it is, <laughs> it's correct. You're doing it right. Um, and uh, allowing it to be true. So non-judgment, kind of not assigning anything to it. And then once you can see and acknowledge it, just allowing it to be true. I say this in my work by saying permission to grieve, but you can also say, can I allow this to be true? Or can I accept what's happening right now? There's a lot of different ways to phrase this, but that's how you kind of go through it. And one last thing I'll say is that our society, uh, I'm speaking of the United States specifically, and most of the westernized world, really fetishizes triumph stories of being over a hard thing, having the whole story wrapped up in 90 minutes with a happy ending, and just having some sort of set conclusion and the movie's over or the TV series is over and everybody knows who they are and what they're doing next and their mission and purpose in life. Release yourself from the expectation that that will be true for your life. Because so rarely especially in 90 minutes, do we really get to a place where we feel like I know what I'm doing next. I know who I am as I'm doing it. And I feel good about it. Very rarely are all three of those true at the same time in any situation in life. So allowing your job loss to be something that remains open-ended. So even 10 years from now, even 20 years from now, you can look back and be like, man, I really miss for me. My first job in Chicago was at this marketing firm, um, on, uh, in, uh, on North Avenue or off of North Avenue. And I love taking the train there every day. And sometimes I still miss that commute. I miss seeing the, the skyline of Chicago going in and I miss taking the bus home because I'd pass this flower shop and every time I'd go in. And so it was just like, there are things that you will continue to miss about it and allowing that to be okay. It doesn't mean that you're broken or that you haven't moved on or that it was a mistake to leave the job. It just means that like you're a human being and invariably human beings form attachments to things and you, were and are still in some way attached to a job that you used to have in your limited time on this earth. I love the way you phrase <laughs> so much of that. Um, Thank you. And it's really resonating with me because um, just yesterday I had two of those moments. Um, I, for the first time, went and met up with a, someone uh, in person at like a bar. And like um, we, I, we were like trying to find a place that was open because, you know, COVID hours and everything is so weird and reservations. And uh, we ended up getting uh, a drink at, on the river at a bar that's beneath my old job. So like this, like really old building that has like a clock tower downtown um, on the river. And I remember I was like sitting there, I'm like, first of all, I like, I get there on the train and I walk the same commute that I had, you know, six, seven years ago, whatever. I'm sitting there and he's like, this is a cool spot. How'd you find this? I'm like, I used to work upstairs. And then I told this whole story about watching the, um, the tightrope walker uh, years ago when they had, yeah. if you remember that in Chicago? I remember had, that, yes. We had a tightrope walker walk from the Leo Burnett building to the top of the corncob buildings, the Wilco Towers. And, uh, and I was on the rooftop of this building, which is like right next to it in the clock tower, like watching this happen. And I was like having this experience this, like I spent, so, I would go there on the weekends and just hang out in that office because it was so nice. And like, that's where I learned how to podcast. That's where I like learned how to do all sorts of different things. So, and then I rode a bike home on the Lakeshore path, which is like a commute that has been part of so many different jobs. And like, yes. there's, there is so much to that. And I think like, you know, it's not even just one emotion. If you've been in a city or you've been around a while, like you could have a 
competing emotions for different areas and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I like the way that you're putting that because I do think that we are discouraged generally in the job search, in our careers, in our work, we're discouraged from allowing ourselves to feel what we're feeling. Like you, you don't, you don't want to go back into the office because now you've been working from home for a year. Well, that's because you're a selfish millennial, right? Or you do want to go back into the office. Well, stop doing that. You're making everyone look bad. Like whatever the thing might be, there's always someone telling you to feel or do the opposite. And I like how you're saying non-judgment and that permission to feel what you're feeling because at the end of the day, you know, we are just this big work in progress, right? There is no end point to it. And we need to just keep going, well, what do I feel now? What do I feel now? How can I grow from this experience? And what am I hopefully improving upon? Because I I talked to someone uh, earlier this week and they were talking about how like, all right, now that I'm going through this career change because my company got bought by another company and now my role is Mm -hmm. changing, which is a whole nother thing that can happen. It's another kind of grief. Uh Another kind of grief. And and he feels like he's getting pushed out. It's like, well, what does that, like he's having a whole existential crisis. The way he phrased it, he goes, this, the last time I left a job, I was just leaving that job, which of course isn't true. But, uh, Mm -hmm. and he goes, but this time it's hitting different. And I think that that mm-hmm. way of phrasing it is so interesting because he's reaching for control. He's saying, how do I build my new identity? How do I find another career path or another thing? We're like latching onto these things to hopefully ground us. And I'm glad that you talked about how like, it's more than just the job. It's the office, the company, the everything. Because I've said all the time, when someone gets laid off, they're not just losing their financial security, which is what everyone seems to talk about. Oh, you need a job because you need money, right? Mm-hmm. It's your reputation. If you worked at an ad agency like Leo Burnett or something, you are a Leo person. Like that's a thing. That's a that's an mm-hmm. identity. If you work at Google, you're a Googler. Like I like how you talked about how these companies have, for good or for bad, wormed their way into our like everything right and so Mm -hmm. someone who works at google has like this reputation as a googler and they're always a googler like i i've interviewed people on this podcast who are like i'm an i'm a facebook alum and i'm like the heck is a facebook alum right and like that it's it's like your college right it's like i wear it like a, a a brand that i've adopted into my personality and and i do feel that identity is a little bit of a fallacy sometimes in our careers, but it's like, like technically not there, but emotionally very there. I, it's, it's kind of a funky thing, but, um, but people do, they lose their reputation because the reputation was with the company. They lose their identity because their job title was their identity to some degree and they lose their financial security. So there's a lot of things to mourn. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone's going through that, you talked about rituals. What are some of the rituals that we could put into place so that we don't fall back on our bad habits or our distractors or our numbing or whatever the other things might be? Yeah, so I've kind of got two coming to mind right now. Um, And I love this because uh, the loss of identity, financial stability, and reputation are all intangible. You can't Mm -hmm. touch them. They're, they don't, it's not like someone has died and you go to a funeral and you see their body and have that whole experience of, for as much as funerals are 
ceremonies of a life ending, they kind of symbolize the beginning of grieving. And so, but a funeral in and of itself is kind of like the bookend to a life. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's the end. Here's the last time anybody is seeing you. And then you go on the ground or you get cremated or what have you. This is traditional funerals or as we know them. Um, in and it's Western more for society. the living, right? For the living to be able to process. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I think people have funerals for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes, um, sometimes people who have died really want to have funerals because they want to be remembered and and um, make sure that their legacy has an impact. Sometimes, especially if they're a celebrity or something, it's for press and PR. Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, it is for the living to to get together to tell stories to mourn collectively because it's one of the few opportunities that our society uh, gives people to do so. And so, something that you could practically do is is have a a funeral or a going away party or, or a retirement for your old position. And so you could throw yourself, either throw yourself a party, go out to dinner. You could, if it's a very sad thing, you could certainly frame it more like a funeral. Um, and you could make this as tiny and ritualistic, like just for you solo ritual or as public as you want to do it. And so if it's tiny, you could spend, I don't know, an hour or two in, in a morning with a cup of coffee and a, journal or something and, and write a goodbye letter to this position and then just burn it or never mail it, something like that. Um, or you could travel your commute one last time and like leave something on the train seat for the next person to find like a book or something. You could um, incorporate it with end of work rituals, like cleaning out your desk. If you have one, you could um, lovingly I'm saying this write a review on Glassdoor of your experience there <laughs> like there are ways you can publicize the fact that you are leaving a place or you can make it like really silly and funny like like Martin's leaving this position and and going to another one and so I'm having all my friends over for a party and there's balloons and you can throw darts at the old boss on a dartboard I mean like you can you can make this absolutely ridiculously silly and of course it's based on the experience you had at the workplace was it a good experience was it a bad experience was it a mix of both was it a job that was really personal to you or one that you didn't really care about that all informs like the level of ritual you have surrounding it but I would advise you to just do something that puts an end cap or a bookend on and now this season or chapter, my experience of living in that is over. You still have permission for the memories to continue and the feelings to continue, but the experience of living in it is over. The other thing I wanted to say is that um, in grieving identity, there's often this dismay about who am I now? What am I now? How do I define myself? Kind of like this person you're talking to who's being bought out by another company. It's like, there's this ambiguity about who I am and what I'm doing here. Um, both logically and literally and existentially. It's like these are both happening at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, and something that's been really helpful to me is to um, envision it kind of like a rope bridge. I feel like we live a lot of our lives on solid ground. We live a lot of our lives knowing if we're lucky, we live a lot of our lives knowing who we are, what we're doing. We can put words to what we're living. Mm -hmm. And then there's these seasons where we're crossing from one piece of solid ground to another. And the whole path there is a swinging rope bridge over a canyon that has absolutely no ground underneath it. There's no one around us to help us. It's very, it's very isolating and it's also very wobbly. And we don't know when we're going to land on the next piece of solid land. The only thing we can do is to continue forward on the swinging rope bridge and hope that there's land on the other side. And that, that land looks like, here's how I define myself. I'm feeling more secure and safe. I have a bit more of my power back. So we're talking about power and security again in those spaces. And so something that has been really helpful to me is to surround myself or to just keep nearby something that's unfinished. 
So like to have a puzzle that you can only work on one piece a day, you can touch one piece of this puzzle every day. Or if you're a person who wears jewelry to just have like a tangle of necklaces or something sitting on like a nightstand or the bathroom counter. And it's frustrating. It's agitating because it's not done yet. And you can't untangle it or finish the puzzle all at once, but it reminds you, I am also in a place of not being done yet. I don't know what I am yet. And it's, it's kind of this permission of, I am allowed to be uncertain. I'm allowed to not know. I'm allowed to be in a mid space. Some people call it a liminal space. Brene Brown and her work would call it day two. It's the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. So there's like holy themes there, but Pixar does this too, in terms of designing plot lines for their movies. There's always something that happens day two. It's where the conflict happens, but also the character doesn't know how it's all going to end. And so the audience is also suspended in that unknowing. And so the day three is the resolution, but we're not there yet. We're still on the swinging rope bridge. And so surrounding yourself with something you can look at that's literally unfinished can help you be like, it's okay that I am unfinished also. And it can bring the, again, from paranoia down to practical. That's so great. And that's, and that's <laughs> also really important to keep in mind too, because like, even when you get that job, it doesn't mean you're now never going to be on a rope bridge again. Right. Like right. one of the things when I'm working with, with uh, job seekers, they always say like, once I get that job, everything will be fixed. And I'm like, no, it won't. No, like your life is still going to be your life. You're still going to be you, right? Everywhere you go. You oh, I love being yourself. a bubble popper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just deflate all your hopes and dreams right now. And I'm like, I'm like I do that too, though. You're still going to be you. Like every job I've had, I'm still me in that job, right? And like, and and I keep saying to them, like, you're just going to trade job search problems with job problems. And like, I'm like, why do you not have a job right now? Most of them quit. And I go, why did you quit? because you couldn't stand being at the office. Well, you can't stand being a job seeker, but why do you think this time is gonna be different, right? And it might be different. I'm not saying it's not gonna be different. I mean, hopefully we're learning and improving, but you're gonna have a manager probably, or a client probably, hopefully. And like that is going to come with it, the problems that that person brings to the role, or you know, even if you get your dream job, which is what everyone keeps selling on the internet and drives me nuts. But even if you get your dream job, it doesn't mean anything because the manager might quit or your, your coworker might leave. Like your best friend who works at the company might leave. I remember when my best friend left the first company I worked at, I left three months later because I was like, who do I talk to? Like he was one of the only anchors yeah. I had. Right. And like, it's so interesting to me how like, people will get into a job and then just say, all right, now I don't have to think about the future. And then six months, a year, six years, 10 years, 20 years, all of a sudden they haven't prepped for that next change and it hits them like a, like a pile of bricks, right? Whereas like, mm -hmm. I like how you're saying, keep something reminding you that you're, in, you're always incomplete in some way, shape or form. So it's good to, to have that, I don't know about like, that foot out the door because that's not right but like have right. that gleam in your eye of what's in the future um and I also want to touch on that other piece that you mentioned where uh when it comes to celebrating I actually I never thought about celebrating a layoff or a transition or, or anything like that I think quitting maybe people celebrate like you'll quit and then yeah. everyone will take you out to drinks as on your last You're like day. I'm that's, free I'm free yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> happened to me a few times and those have been the most interesting parties um, because like I had a job where we always had happy hours, like 
almost every day of the week. It was like way too much. And I always called them unhappy hours because people would cry at those because the client yelled at them <laughs> that day or something. And, uh, and I remember on my last day, like they were like, all right, we're going to celebrate you. You're going to go do your own business and whatever. And we're all at this place, which um, I love this restaurant. So I go there all the time. And like, I have flashbacks to this every time I'm there. But uh, I was, we were like standing around having drinks and everyone was like, oh, congrats. Like, you know, you're going to do your own thing. And my boss had, my old manager, she, she had had a few and she comes up to me and she whispered in my ear. She's like, you're inspiring me to leave too. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was like, cool. <laughs> and like those Ooh. moments are so funny to me because it's like everyone is having their own experience. Everyone's having their own emotional thing going on. And I appreciate you saying that like those celebrations are good because the last time I was laid off from a job was such an interesting moment to get laid off. I was, uh, I got the meeting put on my calendar for like a Thursday morning and I sort of saw the writing on the wall. I knew the business was shifting from B2C to B2B and I, I knew there were going to be some areas cut and our area was probably going to get cut. And so, and there had been layoffs in the past and stuff. And so I, I remember seeing that meeting get put on my calendar and I knew I was getting laid off. I was like, I'm like 98% sure I'm getting laid off in the morning. So I turned to my girlfriend, I go, let's go have a dinner. Let's go have a Martin's getting laid off dinner where I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm going to be unemployed tomorrow. And so we went out, we had this dinner and then the next morning I got laid off and it felt like a really nice conclusion, especially because my manager was so nice about it. And honestly, she was going through it too. Um, and then that weekend was the start of career therapy. I had a meetup scheduled for Saturday and I showed up and I go, hey, everyone, I need career therapy too. <laughs> and like, that was the first career yes. therapy meetup. And I had that like community that I had not even known I needed that I was about to build. And so um, I think that you're 110% right about celebrating those moments. Like I could have just gone into a funk or like gone and get drunk or whatever. And I didn't, I just celebrated it. And I spent the rest of the night like preparing myself for this transition, probably because I've gone through so many transitions. I'm used to it by now, but um, mm -hmm. it's like, it was one of those things where I agree with you a hundred percent celebrating those moments is really, it's, it's almost as important as celebrating getting a job, um, because you should put those bookends on it. I really like that. Right. Well, and you're not required to celebrate being laid off. Sometimes it's not full of joy and celebration, but something that memorializes it or ritualizes it yeah. or puts a bookend on it. I love, um, that you said too, you're like, I'd been I had lost my job or I'd quit my job so many other times that I could see the writing on the wall. I knew it was coming. I knew that practicing for this would, or preparing for this the night before would help ease the transition. And there's something to be said for practicing grief. Yes. You get better at it as you go. So if you're in your first job right now and you're like freaking out and anxiety about being laid off or what am I going to lose this thing? You're kind of in the right place because you haven't mm. practiced a lot of grieving job loss yet. Um, the hope is like the hope for all griefs, death, divorce, diagnosis, and the uh, huge array of loss that live that you won't have to face very many in your lifetime. But the reality is that you probably will, especially right now um, in the US with the job market being as unstable as it is um, and COVID really changing what it means to work and to be a worker. So yeah, there's something definitely to be said for practicing grieving and you get better at it as you go. Cause you, I don't know if you would have had a Martin's getting laid off celebration dinner, maybe for your first or second job. But now that you've had these others, it's like, oh, okay. I know what would help feel like 
a bookend on this and a solid transition for me and something that you can you personalize it to your own experience. And the weird thing about me is that my job is to help people through career transitions. So like, <laughs> it was one of those, mo- I've also got the, I guess, odd benefit of like, as soon as I knew I was going to get laid off, I went, well, I've never been laid off before. So now I get a layoff story to add to my, how I can help people <laughs> and, <laughs> and empathize with people. Like, like, I'm like, I almost want to go through every transition. Obviously I don't want to force any of them, but like, I almost want to go through every transition so I can empathize with people who are going through them uh, in some way, shape or form. That's a little bit extreme, but uh, yes. Well, I think you're, go ahead. No, not crazy. It's not a, it's not a wild thing to want um, because as I was talking about earlier, it's like the purpose of grief is to expand your experiences as a human being. And part of that is being able to empathize with other people. And so you have new experiences or, or feel new emotions or move to different places or become different versions of yourself. And you just become a larger and larger container for the experience of grief. So that when grief arrives again and again and again, you're like, oh, I've eaten this dish before or something like it. So I could eat something like it again and then tell people what it's like when they have to eat it. And so it's like, it's, I get especially when it's not heavily charged with a lot of like super negative emotions, it is an opportunity to be like, how can I use this to expand not only the work I do, but when I come into contact with other people who've had this experience, I can empathize with that much, much better or much more strongly. Yeah. And and when it comes to the different sort of ways that we experience grief, obviously everyone's going to experience it differently. So like what, what we're talking about here, any of the specific stories, they're going to hit other people in different ways, but I'd, I'd love, I could talk to you for like 10 hours about this stuff, but uh, we, we do have to come to a close. And uh, when, when it comes to something that um, people could do, we've already talked about how to like manage it if you're going through it right now, but let's say you're in a secure place. Right now you have a job, you, mm-hmm. you're not looking to quit and you're hoping you don't get fired, right? Um, what can you do while you're in that job to be ready for the inevitable day because the the statistics say you will change jobs every four years on average um, whether you want to or don't want to and uh, that means that within the next decade everyone listening will probably have a different job so what are your thoughts holy cow i'm sitting with that as a reality for a moment um wow acknowledging just the sheer numbers and grief of that. Um, so kind of going back to the beginning of, of talking about how can we offer you more power and help, how can we help you feel safe? You're like, I'm feeling pretty powerful and pretty safe right now. So what can I do or should I do if those things get taken away? And it's a little bit like the personal trust contract of like, if I see these red flags, I will leave, but it's in reverse. So it's like, if the day comes when I have to leave or get fired, how can I maintain some of that power and how can I maintain feeling safe? So maintaining power might look a lot like practicing grief um, beforehand. So kind of like you had been laid off or quit other jobs. So you knew how to do a layoff. Well, you don't, you don't practice it by actually laying yourself off or being laid off in your job into practice when that day is going to come, because that would be repetitive and unnecessary, but notice where loss is already happening in your workplace. So are other people leaving jobs or are other people being laid off for other reasons? Is the company either merging or downsizing? Is it being bought out by another company? Are you switching to a different software platform? Are you um, 
going from working remote to now working again in purpose in person. All of these are small losses where you can practice grieving that doorway. We are stepping through one doorway that we can't go back through and we're entering into another one. And so as, as coworkers leave, you can be a part of their grief and grieving process. You don't have to be the shoulder they cry on necessarily, but acknowledge, hey, you're leaving. It was really important to me to have you here. And here's something that I can acknowledge you for contributing to the company or for my experience here. So you can verbalize and vocalize that, and that can help them bookend their experience of leaving. If there was someone you liked, if there was someone you didn't like, of course, wish them well and then see them out the door. Um, but it really depends on like, but as, as, as positions above you and below you change, as managerial positions get swapped out, as you're put in charge of different people or different teams or projects, these are all losses, small losses that you can practice grieving. So when a big loss with this company comes, you know the language that the company speaks because you've been working there for so long. And you know, at least in some sense, how you want your own loss to go. And so you can put structures and systems in place with as much power as you have in the company to request how this happens. Can I get, if possible, four weeks notice instead of two weeks? Can I, um, can I take my team out for a farewell dinner? Can I, can I put, can I go to dinner myself? Um, maybe with the CEO or maybe with the manager or something to just talk about what went well and what didn't or plans for the future. And then if it's a layoff, you might have some more um, extreme or practical things in place. It's like, if I suddenly get off, get laid off, I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to um, spend the afternoon doing something I really love to offset the suddenness of the fact that that happened. Or I'm going to go home and take a nap. Like I'm going to reward myself with sleep for having to go through a really hard thing. So then pivoting over to like the safe column of this. So those are all things that can help you feel powerful. Like you armed with, you're ready for this. You're prepared. Things that can help you feel safe are like, okay, what would help you feel more protected if and when this day comes? So it could be something like how much money can I put into company savings plan or HSA, if that's something that's offered to you. So this is practical and financial, but it can also be um, get the phone numbers of coworkers you really like, because if you still want to be friends beyond the company, you should know how to contact them outside of work email. And that's something that I've forgotten to do in my own jobs. I've, I've really, I've left people I really liked and I couldn't find them on social media. And I was like, crap, they're gone forever. Cause I don't have their phone number. And so even creating like a little safety kit of like, here's my coworkers phone numbers in case something ever needs to happen. Please reassure them that you're not going to text them about work while you're still working <laughs> together. Cause people hate that on the weekends, but yes, just having people's phone numbers can be really helpful. Taking pictures, take a picture of you at your desk. Take a picture of you at your job. And so you have something to remember if and when you end up leaving. And so memory making is a way to feel safe in a place. Um, and then something that I've done at every single job that I've ever had, um, because I read about it in a book and I wish I could remember which one, but I have an inbox folder called Keepers. And it's anytime anyone has ever thanked me, anytime anyone has ever applauded the work that I do, anytime anybody sent anything really funny about an interaction at work, and I've just saved them and put them all away. And whenever I leave the company, I literally go and select all the emails and forward them to my personal email. Because when I job hunt again, these provide the statistics, the numbers, the data of when I've done really well at a position that I've been in, and I can use them to help sell myself to whatever's next. Um, I have a very dear friend who does um, talent acquisition for a pretty big company. And one of the best things she says you can do for yourself is keep a brag sheet or an inbox where like all of your good things go. And to also work with people like you who like you're a job search helper, but you can also help with, I'll put eyeballs on your resume. I'll keep your numbers updated. I'll if you win an award, if you have to get a license in something, if you have to take an exam in order to maintain your position, keep adding all that stuff to your list. And that's a way to help keep the safe 
column in TAPS. It's like, how do we maintain your power? How do we maintain your safety? And you may not need it now. And it's hard to do things now that you don't need now. Um, but the more that you do them, and again, the more jobs you have, you'll get more practice at this. Then when the day comes, when you're either laid off or you quit, you have both of these buckets of here's where I feel powerful in this position as someone who is exiting a company. And here's where I feel safe in this position as someone who is exiting a company. And it's powerful as I can and safe as I can. It's kind of within the limits of your humanity because we're all human. So it won't be perfect, but it will be much more helpful than whatever you do or do not have set in place right now. <laughs> For most people, it's nothing. And so anything you can do to support yourself, even if it's two or three things from each of those buckets can be really helpful. That's incredible. That is such Thank you. <laughs> I love it. I'm so glad we got to end on that. Um, Shelby, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know people are going to want to find out more about you. So what can they look up? I know you've got some books, you've got a podcast, share everything with us and let us know where we can find you. Yes. Um, so the website where literally everything is housed is shelbyforsythia.com. That's Shelby like the car and then Forsythia like the flower. Um, if you kind of butcher spelling it, Google usually finds me anyway. So just <laughs> try your best and I, I support you. <laughs> Um, the two things I'll brag about right now, um, my most recent book came out in September of last year called Your Grief, Your Way, and it's a non-religious daily devotional for grief, and there's maybe about a paragraph or two a day that you go through and read, and they alternate. So one paragraph will be a quote from a grieving person and then some commentary on it, and then the next day will be some sort of practical exercise. Like if you're still getting mail for your dead person, here's how to contact companies and ask them to stop, because that's a trigger every time you go to the mailbox. Or... Um, if you're making progress in your recovery, here's some journaling prompts to get you started if you feel like you're starting to want to write or process through writing again. And so that's the book that just came out in September. And then uh, I recently started a new podcast called Grief Seeds, and they're teeny tiny 10 to 15 minute episodes of little tips, little practices, little mindfulness exercises that I've done with clients one-on-one -on -one and through workshops that have proven very, very powerful. So I'm just like lobbing them through the internet at you. I'm like, here's 15 minutes, try this thing in your own life. And this is for all <laughs> griefs. So your grief, your ways is intended for people who have lost a loved one to death. It's a year's worth of devotions after someone has died. Um, but then grief seeds is for all kinds of losses. So if you are stepping through a doorway that you can't go back through, um, that's a really good place to start. And that's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Wonderful. Go check it out, everyone. And Shelby, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much, Martin. I'm so excited to be relocating back to Chicago so I can see you in person. We'll welcome you back with open arms. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc., and uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.